Well, just to start off, uh, before we get into our passage, I had a blue slip question uh, two weeks ago about Leviticus, uh, which we've been uh, looking through. I hope you don't mind whoever wrote the question that we didn't do at the carol service last week. Um, But the question was, we looked at the uh, blessings and cursings uh, in Leviticus at the end, uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 26. And the question was, do those blessings and cursings uh, still apply so uh, if you weren't here for the series, the, um, at the end of the book of Leviticus, there's a, a series of blessings if the nation was to obey, and a series of cursings if the nation uh, didn't obey. And the question was, does it still apply? Well, it does apply in, in some senses. We said with all these things, we need to look at how it applies through Christ. But in the sense that this is a nation, does it still apply? Well, no, because God's people are not a nation state as they were before. Um, so the idea of being invaded by enemies, the idea of plagues coming and those sorts of things as punishment uh, for God's people, well, it doesn't really work because God's people are spread across different uh, nations. We're not uh, a country anymore. Uh, sometimes you get the impression with the way that some people explain these sorts of things that the UK uh, or the USA uh, are God's nation or God's country. We know, of course, Yorkshire is God's own country, uh, <laughs> really, but um, it's... The UK and the USA are not God's nation, they're not God's country. So we cannot say things like, or I'm nervous of saying things certainly, where we say, well this happened because God is judging X, Y, Z. I remember when uh, things like the the two towers were knocked down, uh, people say, oh God is judging America as though he was judging uh, Israel in the Old Testament. Now God does deal with nations, as always, but in these times we have no commentary on what God is doing. And they're not being held to what Israel were being held to. That was a covenant that God made uh, with Israel. And equally, it does not mean that when things are going well, when there's victory and prosperity, that that means the nation is doing spiritually well. Even if you look in the Old Testament, there are nations that are are raised up for a purpose, but it's not because they're spiritually good. Um, God is using them for something else. And equally, oppression of a nation does not mean that they're spiritually doing badly. So think of a country like China, where actually uh, the laws are very anti-Christian, but actually the church there is growing and thriving uh, in China. So we can't uh, look at this and sort of say, oh, this applies to countries uh, now. Um, better to focus really on our own obedience uh, to what has been revealed in the Bible, our own obedience uh, to Christ. We said when we look through it that God does discipline us, uh, as it talks about in Hebrews 12. Uh, there can be times when we sin and God does do things to us to to put us back on the right track. But again, we're not given a commentary on those things. So we can't point to someone and say, you're having a bad time, therefore you have sinned. If you don't believe me, read the book of Job. Uh, That will explain that to you. But we are to look at these things. They do still apply in the sense that we're to look to ourselves and we look to our own obedience uh, and seek to follow God with the whole of our heart. So I hope that answers your question. If you've got any follow-up questions, do write them on a blue slip and they go in the uh, wooden box uh, at the back. But we'll come now to our passage. Let me pray before we uh, dig in. Father God, as we come to your word, Father, we pray that you'd speak to us this morning. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Father, we thank you uh, for the way that it challenges us. Father, pray you'd challenge us this morning with your word and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Happiness is... How would you finish that sentence? In other words, what is happiness to you. Our passage this morning, uh, Psalm 119, uh, talks about happiness, or more of the idea of blessedness. 
Uh, the Hebrew word there is, is asher. It's a bit more than happiness. The dictionary definition of the Hebrew word is that a state of happiness or well-being that comes when a superior bestows his favour or blessing on another one. So it is happiness, if you like, that blessedness, but it's a bit more than that. It's a given happiness, one that is bestowed by someone else. But that still brings us back to our original question. What is that happiness for you? What does happiness look like for us? Perhaps after Christmas you're thinking, you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. I've never seen chestnuts roasting on an open fire. I'd probably see that one day. Perhaps it's the smile of your children or grandchildren that you see, or partner or parents. Perhaps it's uh, doing well at school if you're at school. The one who wrote this psalm knows what happiness is for him. He knows what it would mean to be truly blessed. Have a look at verse 1 again. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. C.H. Spurgeon, Baptist preacher in the Victorian era, put it like this. The psalmist is so enraptured with the word of God that he regards it as his highest ideal of blessedness to be conformed to it. In other words, he loves God and therefore he loves his word so much that happiness for him is living in line with God's word, doing what God's word says. And that's our first point this morning. Here we see someone who loves, uh, who so loves God that happiness for them is doing God's will. Someone who so loves God that loving, uh, that for them happiness is doing God's will. Imagine loving someone so much that happiness was doing what they wanted. Not just seeing them happy. I think we get that idea, don't we? You can be happy that you've made someone else happy. I mean, the best moments at Christmas, aren't they, for most parents, I think, are not opening their own presents, but seeing the children open their presents, the excited look on their, or hopefully the excited look uh, on their face. But it's not quite that for the psalmist. That's not what he's talking about. The blessedness, the happiness, comes from walking in the law of the Lord. So enthralled is he with God, that doing what God says for him is the highest level of happiness. Really the idea, it's more like one of my favourite films, The Princess Bride. I know some of you have seen it, because we did it for a film night. The Princess Bride. No spoilers here, really. This is the first five minutes of the film. But there's a princess and a farm boy who fall in love. The princess asks the farm boy to do all sorts of different things. Polish my saddle. Fill these with water. Fetch me that pitcher. And all the farm boy ever says to the princess is, as you wish. Eventually, the princess works out that every time he says, as you wish, what he really means is, I love you. Happiness for him was doing as the princess asked. So in love was he with the princess that that was what happiness was. It wasn't for the smile on her face. It was actually doing what she wanted that made him happy. I love God so much, says the psalmist, that true happiness is not doing what I want, but doing what God wants. True blessedness is to be conformed to his will, what he wants. Now, with the farm boy and the princess, the princess might ask selfishly or ask him to do something out of turn. But not so with God. 
God asks us things that are always for our ultimate good. Most of the time, it's our immediate good. Life is better when we keep God's rules, when we love one another. But not always is it immediate. I mean, next week, we'll start studying the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be looking at the Beatitudes, another passage that speaks of blessing. And this is what Jesus says there. It's on the back of your notice sheets, Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we go through something like that, persecution, we go through people saying nasty things about us. When we're doing what God asks us to do, we're still blessed, but our reward is in heaven. Not on earth. It's not immediate, but it's still even then for our ultimate good, doing what God asks us to do. But in general, if we we love God, the more we conform our lives to his word, the happier and more blessed we'll be. Again, Spurgeon puts this quite neatly. The more complete our sanctification, the more intense our blessedness. The more complete our sanctification, the more intense our blessedness. And we know that's true, don't we? I certainly do. I'm never more miserable than when I've sinned as a Christian. And I know that I've sinned. There might be a moment's pleasure in sin. But because of who I am now in Christ, because of who Christ has made me and the way that he's changed my desires, I'm never more miserable than when I sin. So if you want to be happier in 2020, if you want to be more blessed, train yourselves for godliness this year. I know that some of you will have in mind to get fit in the new year. So did anyone else notice the, the higher number of joggers when you were coming into church? I noticed there were about twice as many joggers as normal in town. Everybody trying to get fit for the new year to train for their healthiness. We might even make a plan this year. Join a gym, download an app, join a Zumba class. But brothers and sisters, it's more important to train for godliness this year. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So what's your plan for godliness? What's your regime going to be in 2020? Go to the gym, do that. Do couch to 5K, unless you've got a heart condition. (laughs) more than that go to the gospel this year look what promise that holds it's more than a trim waistline which is all you'll get for for running make it your aim as verse 2 puts it to seek him with all your heart this year don't just run on a treadmill but verse 3 walk in his ways enjoy that given happiness that god bestows to those who walk in his ways who tread the paths of blessing that he's given. But the standard here sounds quite high, doesn't it? Do you notice that? Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who do no wrong but walk in his ways. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. That sounds like a very high bar, doesn't it? I mean, you aim at nothing, you hit nothing every time, true. But this sounds impossible, doesn't it? Surely we're setting ourselves up to fail. Well, the psalmist is also 
someone who so laments their falling short that they cry out to God. Have a look at verses 5 to 8 with me. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The interesting thing here is that the psalmist does not claim to be that person who does no wrong, who seeks God with all his heart, and who keeps his precepts diligently. Instead, he cries out to God in the second half that he would be like that. Verse 5 is a plea to God. Now, this, this is the poem where all the first letters are the letter A. That's what the, um, the Aleph stands for at the top. The A word in this is that word O at the beginning. O. And that's the mark of a true saint, a true Christian. They do not claim to be sinless. Instead, they long to be holy, to be godly. They've got that groan inwardly. Oh, they groan inside themselves, as as Romans puts it, until the whole of them is conformed to the likeness of Christ. The Apostle Paul, a believer, cries out near that same passage where he talks about groaning inwardly and says in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That is how the Apostle Paul feels when he looks at himself. And so does the psalmist. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. At the moment, he's saying he doesn't know all of God's rules. He doesn't know everything God wants in his life and in his character. But he knows there is a time coming when he won't be ashamed. There will be a time when he has an upright heart. But at the moment, he knows that he falls short. You see, it's really easy to read Psalm 119 and think that the psalmist has it all sorted. But he doesn't. He's aware of his falling short. So aware, in fact, that at the end of verse 8, he cries out, do not utterly forsake me. He wants to serve God, he wants to please God, but he's painfully aware that when he looks at himself, he falls short. He's painfully aware that based on his own merit, he deserves to be forsaken. But friends, again, this is the mark of a true believer. This is not someone who's turned away from God, but someone who's come into the light. Someone who's looked into the mirror of God's word and had their sin exposed. What do you see? What do I see when we look at ourselves? If we're being honest. As we approach a new year, it's worth having a good look at yourself. How has the past year gone? If you look at the word and what it says, what about the fruit of the spirit, for example? How has that gone this year? It's a pretty good measure of spiritual character. How has your love been in 2019? How is your joy? How is your peace? How is your patience? How is your kindness? How is your goodness? How is your faithfulness? How is your gentleness? How is your self-control? Have we even been pursuing these things this year with the Spirit's help? 
Were you even aware that you should have been pursuing these things if you're a believer this morning? Why not have a think of this through before the new year? Have I been kind this year? Have I been self-controlled this year? Have I been joyful this year? That's an interesting one, isn't it, in the fruit of the Spirit? Yes, joy is there. And I speak to you as someone who struggled with depression this year. But struggle is the word, isn't it? We fight to be joyful. There's no virtue in being miserable. And it's certainly not something we should be proud of. I know that's fairly countercultural in Yorkshire, isn't it? We're all quite proud of being miserable. But we're to pursue joy. How has that gone? Have I been patient? Have I been loving? Have I been calm and trusted in God? Or have I fretted and been unnecessarily anxious? I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to you. When we look at ourselves honestly, do you know what we often find ourselves saying? Oh, that my ways might be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from the body of death? At least that's how I feel when I look through lists like that. But friends, this is okay. This is a mark of believing. Acknowledging we are not holy, but longing for that holiness. I'd be more worried if there was a room of people sort of nodding their heads and going, yeah, I've done really well this year. Yeah, I'm amazing at love and our humility. Yeah, I've got that sorted. Isn't that more worrying? Actually, that would seem to suggest that either you're not looking very deep at yourselves or that you've not come into the light. If you look at yourself in the dark, you don't find very much, do you? But step into the light and look at yourselves. But... Do follow the advice of Robert Murray McShane, the guy who wrote one of the famous Bible reading schemes we were talking about earlier. He preached a sermon on self-examination, did all the sort of things that we've just talked about. And at the very end, he said this, but for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. So we do need to think about ourselves seriously as we think about the year ahead and our godliness. But for every look at yourself, Take ten looks at Christ. How can we have so much darkness in us and not be forsaken by God? Because Jesus was forsaken for us. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we don't have to. How can we be confident that one day we won't be put to shame? Because Christ was put to shame for us. Hebrews 12 verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ bore the shame, the shame of the cross, that we might not be put to shame. How can we be confident with the psalmist that one day we'll praise God with an upright heart? Because we're told that one day Jesus will return, and then we will be like him. 1 John 3 verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we are, uh, what we will be, has not yet been appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. He is the blessed one that we read about in verses 1 to 4. He is the one who truly delights in God's word and always did what he said. He is the one who can truly, he's the only one who can truly say that he kept God's commands diligently. He's the only one who can truly say that he did no wrong. So we look to him. He's the fulfillment of that. But that's not to say that our godliness is irrelevant. 
Remember what C.H. Spurgeon said, the more complete our sanctification, the more intense our blessedness. So we do think about our godliness, but it does mean that our salvation does not depend on how godly we are. It does mean that we are no more accepted by God because of our good works or character. Titus 3 verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He didn't save us as a reward for good works, either that we did in the past or that we will do in the future. He saved us because of his mercy. And you can only show mercy to someone who is undeserving. It's not mercy to give someone their wages, is it? It's not mercy to pay someone back a debt you owe them. Mercy is what you show to someone who has messed up and is in need of help. He saved us because of his own mercy. But that same gospel of free salvation not only saves us, it teaches us to be godly. It changes our desires and makes us want God and to do what pleases God. So it's not gospel to save and then legalism to live. It's gospel through and through. We serve God lovingly because he loved us first. But how can we know what he wants? If we want to do what he wants, how can we know? Well, our last point, more briefly. Someone, this is someone who is so, uh, knows their ignorance that they listen to God. Someone who so knows their ignorance that they listen to God. It's a bit late now, but uh, what's the best way to get someone exactly what they want for Christmas? Any suggestions? What's the best way to get someone exactly what they want for Christmas? Yes. Ask them. Ask them. That's right. But there's a second step. You're to ask them, and then you're to listen to what they say. <laughs> People have asked me what I want for Christmas, and then not listen to what I've said. We do both, don't we? We ask, and we listen to what they say. The psalmist knows that he needs to look at God's laws, he needs to look at God's word, to see what God wants. Now we read those laws in the light of Christ, as we've been seeing in Leviticus, but they're there to tell us what God wants. Listen to how much God's word and his commandments are mentioned in this psalm. It's literally every verse. Listen. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The psalmist knows that if happiness is doing what God says, then he needs to know what God's word says. God's will is not a guessing game. He's not left us in the dark as to what he wants. He tells us in his word. The problem again is that we mix up what's important to us with what's important to God. So for example, we might want to know this year, will I get that dream job or promotion? Will I get married? Will I get more grandchildren? Who will my teacher be? Will we get the new building for church? You might want to know the answer to all those questions. 
But God's word doesn't tell us the answer to those questions because God is concerned with something else. God tells us more about the how than the what or the who questions. So for example, how should work this year, uh, how should I work at my job this year, whatever job I have? How can I be pure, whether married or single? How can I set an example for my family, however many grandchildren I have? How should I treat my teacher this year, whichever teacher I get, even the really annoying one? How can I be building up my brothers and sisters in church, wherever we meet? You see, God's word is not a horoscope, though some people insist on using it that way. We shouldn't expect it to tell you or us that we're going to meet a tall, dark stranger this year. That would probably tell you, if you do meet a tall, dark stranger this year, invite them to church. It's that sort of thing. But God is not a sanctified fortune teller. He lets us know what we need to know, what's important. And he expects us to trust him with the rest. He expects us to live by faith. That's why it's called living by faith, because we don't know what lies ahead. That would make no sense, would it, if we knew what was coming? The whole point is that we're supposed to trust him. So trust him in this coming year. Read his word, not to know the future, but to know the one who holds the future. Get to know him and what he really wants for your life. And don't assume that you already know. The psalmist here is quite open about his ignorance, isn't he? That's why he went to the word again and again and again. He wants to learn God's word. He wants to learn what God wants. And God's word is inexhaustible. There's always more to learn. I kind of wish we had Laurie here with us who sadly passed away a few weeks ago. He would have told you, wouldn't he, that there's always more to learn. He was always learning stuff from the Bible. A wonderful example that there's always more to go. So don't assume that you know it all and therefore ignore it. Get stuck into God's word this year. If you want to be blessed this year, get to know God better. Get to know his word. And if you haven't done it, remember we talked in September about adding one thing a week, maybe to push you on this year in your walk with God. Maybe think about doing that if you didn't do it in September. One thing that you could do, maybe one little extra time of reading your Bible or one learning a verse or something like that, just to push you on in God's word this year. I'll finish with a final quote, a slight paraphrase from Spurgeon. This is what he says about this whole matter and his commentary on this psalm. He says, settle it in your hearts as a first rule that happiness is holiness and that wisdom is first to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Well begun is half done. To start with a true idea of blessedness is important beyond measure. Man began with being blessed in his innocence. And if our fallen race is ever to be blessed again, it must find it where it lost it at the beginning, namely in conformity to the word and the command of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of your word. Father, we pray that as we have this bit of time before the new year, help us to examine ourselves. Father, help us to see how we're doing and plan for the year ahead to be trained to be godly. But Father, for every look that we take at ourselves, help us to take 10 looks at Christ this year. Father, help us to look to him and remember the wonderful grace that he offers us in the gospel. And Father, help us as we look into your word this year, help us to grow 
in our understanding, but also in our love for you, in our maturity, in our uh, understanding of what you want for our lives. That, Father, you might get the glory and that you might have a people who are zealous for good works. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.